uh, Kelberg against Crawford is it's not it's not a fight, is it really? I mean, um, Crawford is one of the pound for pound top fighters in the world right now, and um, Kelberg is not. They can never lose the WBC title, no matter what weight class they go to. Huh? They call me the problem, but you could call me the can man, because anybody can get it. Africans, Americans, Dominicans, Mexicans, anybody can get it. And welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where we don't get to see our king till December, even though he promised he'd be back in July for the fans. So I don't know what we do about that. It's... I want to come on to Joshua, not fight until December later, because I think there's a lot to be said there. But here's my concern above all else. If you look at what's happened, and we use the heavyweight division as a microcosm of this. In the time we've been talking about Anthony Joshua fighting Fury, Anthony Joshua fighting Wilder, Anthony Joshua fighting Lewis Ortiz, Anthony Joshua essentially fighting the people we consider to be top of the tree. Kids like Shakur Stevenson, Jared Anderson, Troy Isley, Keyshawn Davis, all these top-ranked guys. And it's not just them. There are, there are others all over the shop, right? You can even put a kid like Daniel Dubois in there. All of these guys have gone from being amateurs to now being the, the next wave of change, right? So if you look at the, the post-2016 guys like your Shakur Stevenson's, You'll look at your... I won't put Lawrence Acoli in there as well. These are the guys who should be bubbling through now into our next main event superstars. But they don't get that opportunity because the belts are being strangled by promoters. So when promoters talk about there are no new stars coming through, there's a very good reason why. You know, part of it is social media. Maybe we'll touch on that in a sec. But the real reason is the belts don't move around. So we don't create champions because we become so obsessed with with Undisputed, that we've allowed the belts to be concentrated and controlled by essentially two or three people at any one time. So when Joshua had three belts, he had that under control. And then, you know, you had the loose one floating around between Fury and Wilder. And I know people talk about, ah, you know, the mandatories kill you and we've had to maneuver carefully. For what, really? Do you know what I mean? Like, and I've always stood by this. The belt should be freed up. Fans shouldn't care about who's undisputed. They should care that the best fight the best. And then we as the fans will determine who the number one is. That's our job. So now look at the situation. You've got someone like a Jared Anderson now. Jared Anderson is about 14, 15 fights in. If you're being realistic, could he beat Carlos Takam? Maybe. Be a hard fight, but you'd imagine he'd prevail. And he'd have to take a lot of punishment. But there are guys he could beat in that top 25 right now. And he's a 14-fight kid. But there were guys that he could beat now. He shouldn't be in that... Like, It's crazy that for him to now get his shot, he's still got to deal with the backlog of people who've been waiting for title shots. Um, Joe Joyce, Hergovic, who've kind of been there or thereabouts for a while. Dubois, who's recently arrived there. And then you've got Jared Anderson. So when does Jared Anderson get his chance? The answer is not for a long time if the bells don't scatter. And I genuinely think the governing bodies should get together. Or I should say, is it the sanctioning bodies? Yeah. And they should just say, right, we've got to split these belts up. We've got to split these belts up and for a couple of years, no unifications. We're not going to approve any unifications. We're just going to let people fight until there's a star big enough that we say, okay, can this guy unify? Is it Daniel Dubois? Is it Jared Anderson? Is it Hergovic, who's a bit older, but he can also be part of that discussion? Is it some heavyweight that you know we, we're seeing on the come up now, like a Fabio Wardley? We don't know is the answer, and we don't because we don't get to see them in meaningful titles. They, they don't fight for meaningful titles, and it's not right. 
that's my frustration at the moment with that and so it leads to a lack of star power because we can't elevate these guys because they never get tested you know we saw the same in the light heavyweight division now that the belts are with Baturbiev and Yard everyone's kind of just sat there imagine if all four belts were free you know you'd have you'd have Dan Aziz fight for world title this year Garen Damteed you'd have Spider fighting for a world title, guaranteed. You might have Joe Smith going for another one. You might have Yard going for another one. You'd have far more opportunity to see these guys getting tested. But because the belts are concentrated in two people, you don't get to see that. And the belts are held under hostage. It's the same at 154. It's the same with Canelo at 168. The belts are being held hostage so we don't get meaningful fights. Because the only meaningful fight in any division now is undisputed. And it's suffocated the division. We, we don't have opportunity, or an, sorry that again, we don't have an opportunity to build stars because they don't have rivalries. Shakur Stevenson only has one option, 135 at the moment. That's to fight the winner of Haney versus Lomachenko if he wants a belt. That's insane. Why can't he fight Roley at 135 for a belt? Jimmy, why can't... Why can't Tank fight someone for... Why can't this happen? And it's because we, we got sold to Smith that Undisputed was what we wanted as fans. And it kind of is, but we want stars. We've accepted these belts don't mean anything. Right? The belts don't really mean anything. It's just a hook to get the best to fight the best. That's what it should be. And at the moment, we're allowing these belts to be kept hostage. And I fundamentally disagree with that. And I, I think as fans, we should be moving away from this undisputed. Look, Katie Taylor versus Chantal Cameron. Undisputed versus undisputed. So you've got someone who's way past her best fighting, someone who's had all the time in the world to prove themselves and hasn't. And in the meantime, it's just shown how petty she is at the expense of someone else's career. There's very little meaning when it comes to undisputed and I'd rather we had if we're going to have four belts or five belts for the IBO which is kind of what's been a natural consequence right when all the belts are tied up people start digging up the IBO and saying can we get this moving so we can call our guy world champion so yeah it's frustrating and then and then the other thing quite rightly is we're now bemoaning the lack of real stars right Where, where's the next Mike Tyson where's the next Lennox and and I, I see people blaming social media. I think it's the right thing to do. Like, boxing fans killed all the stars in boxing. And I know people go, nah, it wasn't me. It's all of us, right? If you look at Conor Ben, we absolutely hammered Conor Ben. Now, even before he failed the drugs test, Conor Ben was just getting hammered. Um, I think after the, after the Pay No fight, is that his name, the French guy that he, he went life and death with? He's just been getting hammered. It's the same with Campbell Hatton. They get hammered and people tell us they're rubbish, they're this, they're that. And I always used to say, don't judge Campbell Hatton for at least two years and then let's see where he's at. But if we keep shooting people down because we don't like them, not because they're like not stars, but just because, oh, well, we just want to be negative. And it's a lot of us. I've been guilty of that in the, in the past, yeah. But if we keep shooting people down and any time they come onto an interview, we rip it to shreds. And that's why comment sections are so toxic on YouTube. If we keep doing that, do you wonder why people don't say anything in public? Yeah. We, as a sport, as a fan base, we need to understand that boxing is not football. You know, you support your football team for whatever reason. Your old man supported it. It's the local team in your area. Whatever. You know, you have a reason to support your football team. And it's adversarial, so you don't necessarily like the other team. But you can have a beer with them when you bump into each other on holiday, right? We sustain the dislike for our opposition in boxing for so long that it's not worth it. And I, I, I see guys, and I talk to some of these boxers, and I say you should do more on social media, and they say, I don't want the criticism. If I go out and help at a children's hospital, I'll get criticized. If I don't help at a children's hospital, I'll get criticized. I'm going to get criticized if I do something, if I do nothing. Therefore, let me do nothing. Because the people criticizing, for being honest, aren't the ticket buyers. 
So how you fix that, how you actually create stars in boxing, I don't know because it's not a fan base that lends itself to that. I keep saying this. If you look at people who are hardcore boxing fans, generally speaking, they're... A lot of them are the people you don't remember at school. They'll tell you that when you're a year at school and you're like, I don't remember. Because a lot of people latch on to boxing because it's their, it's their calling card for being cool and tough and edgy and not part of the mainstream. And that's Whatever your motivations are, fine, but you've got to own them and you've got to accept that what you do is pretty toxic when you start ripping people down who are doing the very thing you claim to be a fan of. And we all do it, right? And, it, and this is where the line gets blurry because it's like, well, what are you going to do in your podcast? And I say, the aim of my podcast is to walk a relatively balanced line. And the balanced line is this. Talk about the good, talk about the bad, but give it context. And I think a lot of times on social media, we don't give anything context. We just want to say what we want to say and we want to be right. And that stops people wanting to be stars. That stops people wanting to engage. I remember I was trying to pull together. Um, I was trying to pull together a live show. Like just like literally just get all the people I know in boxing. We hire out a venue, a pub. I, don't, I wouldn't really care. Get some cameras in there. And just having like an honest like fans get to talk to boxers and ask questions they've always wanted to ask. And when I started to talk to boxers about doing this, they said, no. Nah. They said, it will go left so quickly. It will go left. It will be caught on camera. Not worth it. Not because they hate the fans. They just know that there'll be some people there with malicious intent. And I, talk, I talked about eight or nine different boxers. And these are like minimum British level guys. And it was like, no. No. And the reason they were saying no was simple. It's not worth the grief. So as boxing fans, we've got to ask ourselves, are we going to see the boxers as one of us? Or are we going to see them as the enemy? That's the real question. Now, I don't believe that I'm going to be the, the voice that changes the view because a lot of people, I said, a lot of people arrive at boxing from quite dark places. And if they're being honest, they'd admit that too. And I think things like Twitter and Instagram and so on and so forth allow you to release that toxicity. And maybe... That's therapeutic and it stops someone in the real world getting hurt. I don't know. But until we love our sport above all else, until we love our boxers above all else, we're going to struggle. We don't have to love Eddie Hearn. We don't have to love Coogan Cassius. We don't have to love Seconds Out and, you know, the guy who allegedly harasses female boxers in the DMs, Danny Flexen, Danny Wandering Hands Flexen. We don't have to. Right? They're the guys, it doesn't matter. I don't, I'm incidental to all of this. But we've got to love the sport. And we've got to love the boxers. And through doing that, we'll just put pressure on people to do the right thing by the sport and by the boxers. But right now, Hearn knows he can mobilize his fan base against boxer X. Tyson Fury knows he can mobilize his fan base against promoter Y. And, and they just, they're just pulling you guys on strings. And so it, it contributes to an environment where it's just not, it's not nice to scroll through boxing Twitter sometimes. I just leave it, you know. I've just left it to the, I don't even know, man, the forklift drivers and all of that, man. You just, just do what you want to do. But that's the reason we don't have any stars. And I don't think it's just a boxing thing either, to be honest with you. Look at the grief Jack Grealish gets. But Jack Grealish is everything we want in a footballer. Yeah. Now, say Jack Grealish has that thing that David Hay has. Everyone's got a mate who, who kind of reminds him of Jack Grealish. Not 100%, but there's enough of him where you're like, yeah, he reminds me of so-and-so. And we don't really applaud that, and we don't praise that. We criticize it. We have to just accept these people are superstars. Man. <laughs> they get to perform in front of thousands, if not millions of people on a regular basis. That's not normal. Just applaud that. Because I want more stars to come back. I want more characters to come back. I want people to say stuff like, what if there are reptiles living under the earth? Now, we can all have a laugh about that, but let's give an environment in which someone can be silly like that, vulnerable, um, ignorant, deluded, without ripping into them and turning them into a meme. But I don't know if we'll ever get to that point. 
But I do want to switch gears and I want to talk about the stable Bob Aaron's been able to build. And this is absolutely insane, right? So on, on one card, Bob Aram is able to give us Shakur Stevenson, Jared Anderson, Keyshawn Davis, Troy Isley. Four people I guarantee will be world champions. One already is, but the rest of them will all be world champions. It's guaranteed that sure as night follows day. Four of those on one card. Those four all promoted by Bob Aram. Now look at Eddie Hearn's stable. Nowhere near. Nowhere near the quality. They've got Shakur Stevenson. We've got Joe Cordina. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's your perspective. They've got someone like uh, Troy Isley. We've got someone like a Pat McCormack. This is levels to this. And we struggle. And I know Frank's trying to do his thing by signing up some of these guys, but Frank hasn't really got that creme de la creme. And that's not the promoter's fault. That's the... A symptom of how bad British boxing is from a training perspective. We just don't have the quality. We've definitely got the raw materials. We don't have quality trainers. We just don't. You know. And someone says, Oh my god, you're always so negative about trainers. Do you know what it is? Like you can talk to someone like Joe Gallagher. And Joe will talk boxing. And Joe will talk about his experiences dealing with world title fights. And you realize that guy understands what it takes to win at that level, comfortably. You know, he's got that experience, that knowledge. You're, you're confident he could do it again. Yeah. On the other hand, you look at some of the other guys in the game and you're like, I don't believe you'll ever train a world champion. Because you don't know what it takes to, to be good at anything. And that's not a bad thing, by the way, because everyone's on a journey. But I see a lot of guys who are given prospects and given fighters, some experience, some not, and you say to yourself, well, what have you done to earn that? You're, you're basically the custodian of someone's future success, yet you can't manage your training load. You don't know how to periodize your boxer. You don't know when your boxer should be peaking in camp. You don't know when he should be resting and you know, deloading in camp. You don't know any of these principles. You just go in there, make him do more, make him do more. You don't pull the reins back. And this is why British fighters never show up on fight night fresh. Because they've never understood these ideas. They, they, to be a good trainer at anything takes time. I remember when I was young, I did my... So in rugby, I did my, my level one, two, and three reasonably quickly because like studies and all that. I was a student, so I could do that. And so I'm like, yeah, I'm a level three coach. So a level three coach, you can kind of, if I remember the rules correctly, you can coach to the top end of the amateur game in rugby. And I thought I knew it all. And it wasn't until I spent some time with Brian Ashton and just listening to how he approaches rugby, how he views rugby. And I just said, I don't know a thing. I don't know a thing. Because before I met Brian Ashton, I was there like, yeah, maybe I could coach Wimbledon Rugby Football Club and all that stuff. Maybe I could coach at that level. That's what I was thinking at the time. Yeah? Me in my mid-20s. I mean, yeah, I could do that. And then you start talking to someone like Brian Ashton and you realize you can't because he's seen rugby come and go and he grew up up north so he understands the league as well. And so that depth of knowledge and his ability to knit together different disciplines and different codes of rugby and different training modalities and ideologies and also understand that things come back around in cycles. So whatever we think is new as young coaches is probably quite old. And that's when I realized that actually being a successful coach is a load of learning in the background and then one day you just appear. We've done it the opposite in this country. You build a load of social media buzz, you get some fighters, and then as a coach, you're learning on the job. Now imagine you're a young boxer and you're looking at your train like, mate, you're learning on the job. You're going into the biggest fight of your life and you're like, that dude is learning on the job. I, I don't care, don't, don't talk to me about nothing else. There are a lot of people learning on the job. Because when you look and go, where did you do your apprenticeship? What camps were you in where you were just in the background soaking it in, making notes? They don't have any. They learn stuff online. Because a lot of people genuinely believe you can w listen to what an American trainer says 
and just copy that and that's how you train fighters. And I learned the hard way. That's not true. And here's why. American trainers at that top level, at that level that we recognize, generally get good fighters. Guys who did the Police Athletic League, who did the Golden Gloves, who did the Nationals, did some Olympic trials. You get pretty skilled boxers. And they major on developing those skills and the IQ in the ring. Strength and conditioning is, is not an afterthought, but it's a secondary consideration. In this country, strength and conditioning is a primary consideration, and if you're skilled, it's a bonus. Right? Because that's what works in our system. You, you're going to get ground into the mud you know, by some of these old-school journeys. They will grind you into the mud, so you've got to have that capability. So the question is, where's the balance point where you can introduce more skill on top of physical conditioning? And the answer is, the skill comes later. So your four-rounders, your six-rounders are all about strength and conditioning. Eight, ten, twelve. Once you get to area level, now you've got to start showing some skill, some good decision-making, some ability to control a fight. But trainers aren't taught this way. Yeah? They're not taught this way. They're not taught to plan in three-year cycles, four-year cycles. It's just fight to fight to fight. And that's why I find a lot of boxers end up not loving the sport. They end up not progressing, not developing. A lot of men end up getting injured because their coach doesn't know what the hell they're doing. In the amateurs and the pros, there's a lot of this. You know, na naming and shaming doesn't do anything. But there are a lot of people who are in bad situations and their careers go nowhere because of the, the trainers they ended up with. I want to come back to trainers at the end of this episode. But... That's one of the problems we have in terms of building stars. We do not have quality inputs. We've got quality raw materials, but the inputs in the process aren't good. We need better trainers. And one of the key things to that, I know people say, oh, you just complain all the time. What's the solution? Here's the solution. If your trainer doesn't go to another trainer's gym, get rid of them. Get rid of them. This is a message to every boxer. If your trainer doesn't go to another trainer's gym, I don't care if they go to their mate's gym, I don't care if they go to their brother's gym, if they don't go to another gym, sit in there and just talk boxing and share ideas. If they, in fight week, aren't talking to other trainers and sharing ideas, get rid of your trainer. Because what that shows is it's all about them. It's not about you. If your trainer was serious about you, they'd be there going, I'll leave no stone unturned. I will happily walk into anybody's gym and observe and go, oh, I never thought of doing it that way. Or ask questions. What, why do you have them do it in that order? And then it's probably a, probably a very good reason why. And you try that out with your guys and say, right, are they physically capable? Yeah. Are they mentally capable? Yeah. Culturally, is this possible? Maybe. And you can do that. But this idea that you, you've got a gym and everything you do happens just in that gym is ridiculous. I, I'm tired of hearing about coaches and trainers, whatever you want to call these guys, not going to see each other. Not, not sitting down over food and a beer and sharing ideas and just, you know, what's going on in your gym? Yeah, how's that going? Is that all good? Because that happens in rugby all the time. Rugby's like that. Like, mate, do you want to just come and look at our sessions? Just see if there's anything you want to make better. You know, and you may choose to incorporate nothing of what they say. But at least you've got more ideas than you did before. And until we fix that, I don't think we move forward because we're not going to create boxers good enough to win the hearts and affections of the public. Only after we fix that do we talk about how poor boxing managers are in general. And how... They have no clue on how to build a boxer. They couldn't tell you how to build a boxer's profile on social media. They couldn't tell you how to monetize social media. I'm surprised at how few top-level boxers have merchandise stores. And I'm surprised at how few boxing prospects who want to be seen aren't there just, just grinding. That's the thing I don't understand. You know, I look at my Instagram followers. I don't have the largest number. But in terms of a boxing follower list, it's as solid as I'd want it to be. And that's just been built on messaging, responding to messages, commenting, liking, being engaged in the community. 
And people say, oh, but you've got to be on that all day. Nah, probably top out about an hour a day. Just an hour a day. And boxers have that time, but they choose not to use it. So you just go, okay, you, you don't want to be successful. You don't want to be rich. You don't want to grow. So for fans, I'm just telling you, this is what's stopping the new wave of British boxers becoming like the Americans. Because the Americans are shameless with it, which is a good thing when you're trying to sell yourself. And then here in the Brits, guys are trying to play the background. Imagine this, you're not fighting, you're not earning, you're not doing anything, and you're still trying to play the background. Yeah, I'm just going to stay low-key. It's like, yeah, but staying low-key is what means you're not boxing. Yeah, yeah, we all come around, though. We all come around still. We all come around, though, still. You just keep playing the low-key, the background thing, and it won't come. I keep saying this, man. Like, the more I see guys like Dan Aziz and Denzel Bentley on TV, the bigger my smile is because they understand. Once you're on that platform, people know who you are. Now, the next level for them is to turn that into revenue. That's the next level for them. Now, I don't know if that's a, a referral code for geezers or um, Sugar Rays or whatever it is. I don't know if it's a referral code like that. I don't know if it's an Adidas or an Under Armour referral code, but something that shows that you can monetize your audience and just build from there. But I just want to come back to Saturday's boxing because... While Bob Arum showed everything that's good about handling and managing prospects, and I think the four that he had on that card were incredible, the Showtime card, they really set Fandora up to fail. Like, when someone's that tall, what is he, 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six at light middle, there's always a risk that if you put them in with someone heavy-handed, bad things will happen. There's always that risk. So while it's hard to be super critical there's always that risk. And maybe someone should have talked to him a long time ago about moving up. But would moving up make a difference? I don't know, because he got, like, the lights got turned out on him. And then he shipped a couple more on the way down. And you look at that and you go, that's the sort of stoppage. I don't know. You're not the same person after that. So if you're asking me, I expect to see Fandora go up in weight. You'll hear about how it was a nightmare cutting weight. Maybe he was sick and he carried an injury and that sort of thing. And he'll move up in weight because at that size, it's not sustainable. You can get away with a lot when you're younger. And as you get older, that, that path becomes harder and harder. So I wish him all the best because he's one of those kids who's just an entertaining guy to watch. And I thought that card was okay, actually, the, the Showtime card. You know, we're seeing Frank Sanchez be put in position, which is also good. So he fought and Ariola fought. So expect them to be fighting at some point before this year is out. And then let's find out who, who the next threat from Showtime will be. I just think that's really, really interesting. But like I said, two, two US cards on a Saturday night. Both better than anything we produce in this country. And we still don't learn the lessons. <laughs> what can you say? But I, wanna, I just want to just move past that and talk about the king of the heavyweight division, the real king, Uncle Femi. So if you'd asked anyone this time last week, when's Joshua boxing? We were told July. So everyone would have told you July. Anthony Joshua's going to fight July. Long shot Tyson Fury likely case Dillian White. Right? That's what, that's what we were told. Now, we then get, a, we get an Instagram message from Anthony Joshua, which says, I'll now be fighting in December. What did he say? That's just what it is. Something's happening. You very glibly just put it, yeah, I'll be fighting in December. And not, not October, not September, not August, December. So you look at it and you go, okay, let, let, let's, let's break down. I'm just going to go through just likely scenarios, right? So scenario number one for me is he finished that fight with Franklin and probably said to Derek James, I didn't feel as skilled in there as I should be. And Derek James has said, you still need time. And so Joshua said, how much time? It's probably like 10 weeks, 12 weeks. And Joshua's like, cool. But Derek James is like, I've got Errol Spence fighting in the summer. And I'll probably have Charlo fighting summertime, September time. And Joshua's like, where do I fit in? Quite right. Anthony Joshua's like, I'm Anthony Joshua. Where do I fit into this? And so that you've got to arrive at a conclusive answer for that. Now, K1 
can Joshua show up and be around them in camp and learn the habits, routines, and sort of mindset? Yeah, 100%. But you're Anthony Joshua. You've got commercial interests. You've got this, that, and the third. You've got to be getting on with. Have you really got time to be in Dallas for that amount of time? Maybe. You know, maybe AJ Properties, formerly known as MTK Properties, will set up a, a division in the United States. But I can see why the summer was looking difficult if Derek James has got two of his guys who are probably more decorated and um, not more lucrative. Well, they might be more lucrative because Joshua doesn't pay a percentage. So if he's got those guys, he's going to prioritize those. So, so that's one potential example. The other one is he's injured. You know, you're coming in over 255 pounds, you're a big lump, you've been through a pretty hard camp where your body's been stressed in ways that hadn't been stressed before. You're probably just feeling the fatigue. Joints are hurting, head is hurting, it's probably still hurting. And he's just said, I can't start camp for another three or four weeks based on my body. I'm getting old now. That's another alternative. But my question is, Ah, what if his opponent in July is not ready for July? That's what I'm going to say. What if, his, what if the expected opponent from July is not going to be ready in July for some reason? Is not going to be ready. And it doesn't make sense to put anyone else in and risk a defeat. What if that's what's happened here? No idea. But that's where I'd speculate. Something's gone wrong in the expected fight schedule here. Because to, to be very definite about December, no other date, no other months between now and then, eight months hence, you're going to be fighting. Either one of the two people involved has to be injured. But to not look for a replacement, there's probably another situation where Maybe they've been told by the Middle East that there's a big pot of gold waiting in December. And you don't want to risk a defeat, a knockdown, whatever. You don't want to risk anything ahead of that pot of gold. Now, I don't know what the right answer is in that whole mix. Because we're talking about Fury Usyk landing around that time as well in the same region. So I don't know what the, the full story is. What I do know is for him to be very definite that he'll fight again in December in early April... Something has happened that we won't find out about, but there's something seismic that's happened for sure. But it, it, it's a downside because, like I said, British boxing is essentially the Anthony Joshua business. When he's around, numbers, numbers are better. They're not what they were before. Like, you go back to Ruiz too, numbers were spectacular. You'd do anything about Joshua, numbers were spectacular. You know? Um... After the, after the Usyk fight, when he just lost his mind. Numbers were spectacular. But then that precipitated a, a drop-off. And I don't think, if you go back to the Joshua fight with Franklin, not once did that trend. No, Anthony Joshua didn't really trend. Until he did the Laura Woods interview, he wasn't trending. Because that was the first time you suddenly realized, and that's why if you listen to Eddie Hearn, he's not as bullish as he was about AJ, because he'd have seen those numbers. He'd have known how many people asked for press accreditation. He'd know, like, he'd know the numbers are down. And part of that is just the public being bored of waiting around for the big fights, and part of that is actually realizing Joshua's not the guy they thought he was. But when he's not here, like, boxing's in the doldrums. Fury's not delivering. I mean, Wilder is on some path of redemption. We don't have anything of excitement. Canelo's fighting John Ryder, for God's sake. Like, what have we got to be excited about, apart from the young guys coming through? So now, if it means that Usyk fights Daniel Dubois, perfect. That's exactly what we want. That's exactly what we want. A guy we can elevate from the crowd and say, oh, Daniel Dubois is now at world level. Perfect. Joe Joyce fights Gilles Zhang. Perfect. Beat him, now we know that you're next for whoever has the belt that you're after. Perfect. Chance to elevate fresh stars. That's all we want. But without Anthony Joshua, like I said, I said this about Floyd Mayweather. You want the money to pass on. 
So the more Joshua fights, the more rub some of these guys get and the more there's money in the sport for even if Joshua decides to retire. But on a side note, I wouldn't be surprised if he fights in December and retires after that. I just, I don't think we've got much left of Anthony Joshua in the sport. I, I don't, I think the physical and mental toll seems to be catching up to him now. Um, the final thing I wanted to just touch on was um, Kevin Campion, um, who works with Steve Goodwin at Goodwin Boxing, wrote an interesting article about trainers and how trainers are the underappreciated and underrepresented voice in boxing, right? Probably the most exploited people in boxing. And it hurts me for a number of reasons. One, I know a lot of these guys. Known personally, some of them I've, I've come up with and I get to see the struggles up close and people don't understand how hard it is being a trainer. Now, for me, I always put trainers in one of four boxes, depending on what, who they're dealing with, right? You're, you're either a builder or a fixer. And then that splits into amateur and pro. You're either a builder or a fixer. Um, how, do, how do you describe someone who's a builder? Now, off the top of my head, good examples of builders are the Rumbles family. So like Charlie Rumble Sr., Billy Rumble. Um, I'd even put Charlie Jr. in there because he's learned from his old man. Um, throw Russ Gerrard in there at West Ham. I like what the Alliance lot are doing up in Leeds as well. So shouts out to Sam and Graham and Darren as well if he's still there. And even someone like a Mark Rygate I'd put in there. They're guys who can kind of take a kid who walks in off the gym. I should throw my, my hat in the ring, but I don't know where I am at the moment. But they're kids. They'll take a kid off the street. And they'll get that kid competitive in national tournaments. Guaranteed. If you trust them and you do everything they ask you to do, you'll get there, right? They're those guys. Uh, Sam Mullins is in that as well, actually. Credit where credit's due. And then they're fixers. And the early part of my career, I was probably more of a fixer than a creator. And a fixer is a guy who can see what's going wrong in someone else's setup and create an, an alternative re environment, not reality, alternative environment in which they can thrive. Right? And if you're trying to get a club from zero to 100 quickly, that's a big asset to have. So, you know, I mean, for example, I could take someone like a, like a John Palata or a Connor Hines and you can just work with them quickly, understand what they weren't getting before versus what they need, get them to that point, bang you get performances and results. Right? And that's also true in the pro game. There are guys who can take a professional from zero and put all the right things in them and ride them all the way up. Then there are guys in the pro game who are fixers. Freddie Roach is a really good example of a fixer where he'll just have you fall in love with boxing again. You know, you may, no matter how many world titles you've won, and he'll give you, he'll give you his, his approach to to winning, which is essentially all-out attack. Nothing wrong with that. And that's what you have, right? And then there's like a weird category of people where we're not sure if they're any good or not because they seem to just have those sorts of freaks. So take someone like Customato. Customato had champions over many decades. Angelo Dundee, champions in many decades. You can question their relative roles and what they did. Did they hold the pads? Emmanuel Stewart, another example. Champions in multiple decades. Those guys you don't question. And then you've got your guys like your Virgil Hunters. Where it only seems to happen once. And then it didn't work with anyone else. And you sort of say, okay, what do we make of them? Was it the fighter? Was it the trainer? The answer is somewhere between the two. So... These are the basically that's your broad landscape of boxing trainers, as far as I'm concerned. The most important people will always be the creators, always, because they feed the system. Amateur level, pro level, they feed the system. In the AMS, I get why you don't have a contract. There's no money at stake. If kids want to come, they'll come. It's more about the love of the sport. If you don't love the sport, you don't love the club, you're not going to show up, and that's fine. But you take the pro game. Your first 10, 15 fights, unless you're a superstar, you're not going to make much. 
but the punches still feel the same. The pad work will still feel the same. The demands don't change. The trainer still has to wear that body belt and get his ribs tenderized or her ribs tenderized. You still have to hold the mitts and go home and your wrists are clicking and you find it hard to, to open tins. You know, sometimes you go home, your arm's still shaking. Sometimes you get hit so hard, man, it dislodges one of your tendons and you smack a nerve and you get that feeling almost like you've got hot water running through your arm. Sometimes you catch a stray shot. And you don't just do that for an hour a day. If you're in an amateur gym, you might do that for two and a half, three hours straight. If you're in a pro gym, you might have two boxes come in at 10, then another two at 11, and then another two at 12. And you're just getting battered. And you do all of this with no security of tenure. Now contrast that with a promoter who gets a three-year contract. No, no, no minimum performance requirements, just a three-year contract. You get a three-year contract. You can be terrible, right? But you've got that board contract for three years. It's very hard to get out of. Ask Isaac Chamberlain. Really hard to get out of. And how many managers do you know have brought six-figure deals to their clients in boxing? Not many. You might get some free Adidas trainers at a push, but how many times have you actually seen one of these managers really deliver? It's pretty much just Anthony Joshua. There's a reason why Charlie Sims isn't at Wasserman and stuff like that anymore. There's a real reason. He couldn't put a dent in it because the corporate world isn't really touching boxing like that. So what are these managers doing? Entertaining phone calls from promoters. That is all. That is all. They entertain calls from promoters and they kind of just make sure there's no shady stuff going on. But really, that's the trainer. The trainer will make sure there's the right padding in the ring. The trainer will make sure that it's the right, I mean, those are the right gloves. The manager doesn't do that much. And they've got a three-year contract and they get 20%. That tells you who was able to make representation to the board. It wasn't the trainers, it was the managers. The managers said, we should get this money, the trainers should get less because we're more important. And the board fell for this because a lot of those managers were their mates. If you really look at it, it should be 20% to the trainer, 10% to the manager. That would make more sense in boxing. And the trainer should have a three-year contract because I genuinely believe it takes at least two years for a boxer to be who you need them to be. And that's two years of buy-in, that's two years of consistency, that's two years of passion. That's what you need. So if you don't get that security of tenure, how do you commit? And so you end up like some of these trainers constantly having to, to slide in boxes DMs because you need a pipeline of people you can activate if one of your people leaves. That's why the snaky behavior happens. That's why trainers become managers, because they say, look, I'm only getting 10%. The manager gets 20%. I'll do both roles. And I'll charge you 20% for both roles. And that'll probably cover your gym fees too. So as a young boxer, that makes perfect sense. But now look what happens. I'm a trainer manager, and I'm managing seven or eight other fighters. Promoter needs needs you to do something and I need that promoter to do something for me I'm now horse trading with your career for my benefit not necessarily for your benefit that's when you get these conflicts of interest in the article I found it really interesting that Kevin didn't touch on the promoter slash manager where, where you've got that dual role because I also think that's equally problematic you know, no one person should have that much control but then promoters say, look, if we don't have certainty of tenure, then what are we supposed to do? My answer is, put on the best shows you can, and you'll get the fighters, and they'll stay. So we've had this legacy problem where, let's take Joshua. Joshua's gone from McCracken to Joby Clayton, Angel Fernandez, Robert Garcia, Derek James. And I know for a long time he hasn't given people a guaranteed percentage. You sign a contract... That guarantees you a reasonably large fee, but it's capped. 
is capped. So what's the upside of that? None. You should be able to have a guaranteed contract. It should be like, I think it should, every British boxing contract for a trainer should be 20%. And only the trainer can choose to waive that. And no one's allowed to come in under that. It should be a standard minimum so that you can't undercut each other. I feel the same about management. If management is 10%, you shouldn't be allowed to undercut. No side contracts, no nothing. That's how we need to, like, this sport's so rotten. Like, I know people who've been fed to the wolves. Never forget when, was it Ben Hall that fought Carson Jones? And we know what happened there. And that was, that was a secret handshake where, you know, favours were owed. And that happens a lot in boxing. Where people are just set up as sacrificial lambs for a wider agenda, which is the commercial enrichment of the manager and the promoter. And I wish that we'd fix this. And I wish more people talked about this because you imagine training someone for four years and you've trained them through their novice period as a pro. So you're taking terrible money if you're even taking money. And then they get to like English level, getting ready to fight for a British, and all of a sudden they switch trainers. And you haven't recouped anything. There's no recompense for, for the, the arm shakes. There's no recompense for the broken fingers. There's no recompense for the dislocated thumbs. There's no recompense for the damage to your shoulders, your elbows, your ribs. There's no recompense for that. There's no recompense for the emotional support you provide. You know, that relationship you build as a trainer with a fighter is so deep that it's crazy that it has to end the way it does. Remember, this is the stuff that was, was breaking Naz down. We never heard about Naz falling out with his manager. It was never, that was never the issue. It was, oh, he doesn't want to pay Brendan, his trainer, the guy that essentially built Naz. Now, there you go. If you've got a board-sanctioned contract, it would have been 20% of whatever. And that's the right thing to do. Always the trainer getting shafted because the manager can get in the fighter's ear and blame the trainer. Look at Anthony Joshua versus Jermaine Franklin. That KD is still there. That Nas Ahmed is still there. The Malinois are still there, like all the yes-men are still there. Robert Garcia's not. He carried the can. Joby Clayton's not. Rob McCracken's not. Carried the can. Why? Because these guys can get in Joshua's ear and go, it's his fault. And I know Joshua says he makes all the decisions. All right, cool. But when people get in your ear, they'll influence you. And that's what happens in boxing. It's rare that you see someone move trainers and become better. Rare. Rare, because boxers don't take responsibility for the fact that it's on them. The sessions they missed. And elite guys miss training sessions. I know guys who have missed two or three days worth of training because they couldn't be bothered. And what do you do as a trainer? You're like, I need that money, so I've got to accept this. If you had the contract, you could be a lot firmer. You'd get more out of your boxer with a contract because you could be more hardline because they've got nowhere to go. But we'll see what happens. Um, I think one of the few things I agree with Eddie Hearn on is the board needs massive reform. The Amir Khan thing revealed a lot. And this is one of the things that should be on the agenda. How do you protect trainers? Yeah. You know, I always go back to what my mate Dev says. There are people who would do this for free just to be on TV, just to be the center of attention at your call. There are guys, he calls them bag carriers. There are guys that will just show up and do stuff for free in boxing. <laughs> that shouldn't be allowed. Everyone should have to get paid. That ecosystem relies on people getting paid and that's when you can demonstrate value. But people do it for free. They'll do it for a tracksuit or a fight t-shirt. You know, just to say, look, this is what I did. No adult should ever have to do that. That's the problem. How do you regulate something when people are willing to do it for free? With no security, no guarantee. The board have to intervene on that though. There should be a guaranteed 20% for, for trainers 
and 10% for managers. No one should be able to negotiate anything lower. No one should be able to negotiate anything higher. Moving between trainers and managers should just be based on ability and value. But in terms of the board having to sort themselves out, yeah. I wish Eddie Hearn had been this forceful when Eric Molina failed his test. That's what I'm going to say on that. If Eddie Hearn had been equally as forceful when Molina failed his test, we wouldn't have had these problems. We'd have, we'd have had the reform already, but you know, Hearn tried to make excuses then like he's making now. But the public weren't as clued up about doping then as they are now. If that Molina thing happened now, wow. Hearn would have got it in the neck. But I do, though. I'm just going to say in closing, I, I believe everyone should be protected. The people who put their bodies on the line, the fighters and the trainers especially, should be protected before anyone else. They should get the first two slices of cake. Managers aren't that important in boxing. They're just not. I know people talk about guiding a career, but if you've got a good trainer, he can guide your career. Guaranteed. They're the most disp disposable part of this. Maybe we need to look at making them more disposable. And on that note, I'm going to tap out and say, you know, hope everyone had a good Easter break. I did. My family time is everything. It's so important. And I'm grateful. And then we jump straight into a Denzel Bentley fight week. So I'm, I'm stoked about that. And I'm waiting for the Frank Warren ticket giveaway. I want to be all over that. Go and show some support. But yeah, this is going to be a good week. I'm happy for Denzel. Um, I always say just, I just want a better performance than the last one because I always want to see him evolve and progress. Um, like I say, I, I, think, I think he's a rare talent, man. I think, he, he, I think he's got it. So I'm looking forward to, looking forward to that. No idea why Michaela Mayer's on there. I genuinely don't know. Why doesn't Frank just sign women boxers properly and use his own? Because I'm bored of seeing Michaela Mayer in this country. She came over, she was garbage. She went back. Keep her in Colorado as far as I'm concerned. And on that note, I'm going to tap out and say, take care, guys. Mm -hmm.